okay, my mom's cracking me up. She's like, oh, I love how Straight Up Evil is going to Kitty Hawk, which is the most dangerous place. She goes, I go, what are you talking about, mom? What the fuck are you talking about? She goes, Katie, it's really bad over there, right? So I'm like, okay, mom. And we're talking via text, right? And she's like, it's bad. It's dangerous. I can't believe straight up evil's going there. It's dangerous. <laughs> she's going. She refers to us as straight up evil, by the way. I not love it. I as love straight up evil. Okay. So cute. And she's like, and I'm like, okay, mom. So in my head, I'm thinking that she's talking about, because it's bad, like of crime. Like, oh, she's talking about like, it's bad. Like there's Safety a lot of bad people purposes. there. Yeah. No, no. She goes, <laughs> I go, mom, why do you think we're going to be in danger? She goes. The waters, Katie. It's the ocean. They have the biggest <laughs> swells. She goes. I go in. We're not going to be. We're probably not going to be in the ocean water, Mama. <laughs> no, we're not going to be in the water. Absolutely like, not. Well, yeah, I'm not about to go into the cold ass ocean right now. No, 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 no. No amount no. of alcohol can make us do that. <laughs> no. <laughs> Leave the dog alone because the dog didn't do a damn thing, and now you're trying to feed him your body. Thou shalt kill all of your hands and a dog fish a tampon out of the garbage. It ain't right to bubble pages and pretend like you will. The dog. Wow. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Straight Up Evil. My name is Jocelyn. I'm the brunette. We've got Katie. She's the redhead. Holla. And we have Carly. She's the blonde. Hiya. Content warning, right? Trigger warning. <laughs> right up top. This is a not suitable for work episode. Not suitable for maybe even playing over your Alexa episode. Not suitable for anyone. A lot of people episode. This is a graphic, graphic tale brought to us by Carly. Technically, is- <laughs> technically, it was a listener recommendation. Mackenzie emailed us and asked about it, and I am being kind and obliging, but Jesus Christ, Mackenzie. Wow. Wow. Shout out to Mackenzie, though. <laughs> Thank, Thank you for you. emailing us. Thank you very but... much, Mackenzie. Also, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> because this <laughs> like... is really beyond. Really, Mackenzie? Really, Mackenzie? Yeah, so Carly is, tonight is bringing us the case of Tim McLean. Poor Tim McLean. All right. I think it's Tim McLean. McLean. I don't know. Everyone. McLean? I think everyone okay. that I saw says McLean, but it looks like McLean. So I might be going back and forth the entire episode on it. Okay. Tim McLean. I'm going to try. We're jumping right in to what happened. Okay. Don't eat during this episode. Don't eat anything. Yeah. Okay. Just, just maybe don't. just, just, you know. <laughs> Unless you're I don't me, know. who pretty much eats always. But Yeah. <laughs> July 30th, 2008, Tim McLean was returning home to Winnipeg, Canada, after working at a fair in Edmonton. He was a carnival barker, which is someone who yells out at, like, the passing guests, like, trying to get them to, like... Step right up, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, exactly. And he was, in specific, working for a carnival. And he had left Edmonton around midnight on a Greyhound bus, bus 1170, to Winnipeg, via the Yellowhead Highway through Saskatchewan. I... 
don't know why I have such a problem saying that word and I can't ever get it. It's a tough one. It's tough. So this would be about an 18 to 24 hour bus ride. So that's like a long ass time. So Tim sat in the back of the bus. He was one row in front of the toilet and about three and a half hours away from home in Winnipeg, the bus would stop at Erickson, Manitoba, and it would leave again around 655. So at the stop, new passengers would board the bus, including a man named Vincent Lee. So Lee was a tall man in his 40s with a shaved head and he was wearing sunglasses. And at first he was sitting at the front of the bus. A little while after that, a bus took another scheduled rest stop and Tim had actually left the bus. He stretched his legs, maybe smoked a cigarette. He got back on and sat back in his seat in the back of the bus. He then texted his father asking if he could stay with him when he arrived in town. And his father was like, yeah, sure. The bus driver puts in a movie, The Legend of Zorro, and the drive starts again. So about an hour later, Lee then moves to sit, he moves from the front of the bus to the back of the bus next to Tim. And then the bus is like half empty. There was like about 34 passengers. He did not need to sit directly next to Tim at all. It wasn't like there was no room and he had to sit there. Right. So it seemed intentional. It was. And before changing seats, a witness had said Lee had been restless and talking to himself in a foreign language while in the front of the bus. Moving to the back of the bus, he was holding a roll of toilet paper and a bottle of iced tea. And he would not put the toilet paper roll down even to drink his tea. Like he was just holding onto it for dear life. He sits down next to Tim. Tim kind of acknowledges him, whatever. He lets him sit there. And then Tim goes to fall asleep against the window pane. He has headphones covering his ears. So according to witnesses, about 30 minutes later, Tim was sleeping peacefully with his headphones on when Lee suddenly produced a huge hunting knife and starts stabbing Tim in the neck and the chest. Out of the blue. Stuff of nightmares. Absolute nightmare Seriously. The passenger across the aisle from Tim and Lee, Stephen Allison, would let out a blood-curdling scream and yells for the bus driver. At this point, other passengers are becoming aware of the attack, and they also alert the bus driver, a man named Bruce Martin. Everyone was screaming and panicking. Bruce will pull the bus to the side of the road where he and all the other passengers were able to flee the vehicle. During this time, Lee is not paying any attention to the other passengers as the bus was vacated. He is solely focused on attacking Tim. After all the passengers get off, Bruce tries to get Lee to stop and tells him to stop. But Lee threatens him with the knife too. So Bruce runs off the bus and he closes and barricades the bus door. By the time the bus had stopped, Tim had already been stabbed around 50 or 60 times and he was still screaming. Tim had struggled at first and tried to escape as evidenced by a number of defensive wounds, but he was unsuccessful and he eventually either fell or was thrown onto the floor of the bus. Like he just couldn't get away from him. Stephen Allison, the man right by Lee who had, and Tim who had alerted the bus driver, he actually had to go back onto the bus to try to rescue his girlfriend or his possibly his wife off of the bus because she had just been frozen in shock sitting there. Absolutely. When he went to go to get her, he noticed an elderly woman, her son and his wife were stuck in the back of the bus. They couldn't get past Lee and Tim. So somehow the man and his girlfriend or wife helped them get past Lee and off the bus safely. So Bruce and two other men would try to get back on the bus and rescue Tim. But again, Lee chased them back off the bus and slashed at them from behind the locked bus doors. And I believe at some point Lee even got his hand or his arm stuck in the door trying to get at them, but eventually he got it back in and he was barricaded into the, into the bus. Wow. So in Lee's attack, he would ultimately decapitate Tim and display his severed head to everyone outside the bus. Oh my God. He would then go back to Tim's body 
and would begin severing other parts and would consume some of Tim's flesh. And as if this isn't horrific and strange enough, witnesses said he was utterly calm, methodical, and robotic during the attack. He was not full of rage or any other emotion. He was just had a completely calm demeanor, which is like more chilling somehow. Definitely. So at 8.30 p.m., the Royal Canadian Mounted Police in Portage La Prairie received a report of a stabbing on a Greyhound bus west of the city, and they went to check it out, and they found Lee still on board the bus. The bus driver, Bruce, a passenger, and a truck driver named Chris Algier, who had stopped after seeing the bus pulled over, were preventing Lee from escaping the bus. They were barricading the door, and Chris, the truck driver, had provided a crowbar and a hammer they could use to defend themselves. When Lee had tried again to escape, the bus driver had engaged the emergency immobilizer system, which rendered the bus inoperable, which was a perfect foresight to do because Lee would end up trying to drive the bus away. And luckily he couldn't. Like imagine how this could have been different if he was able to just drive away. Keep going. You know? Onto whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So as the Greyhound bus 1170 pulled onto the shoulder, Bernie Skyrup, which is a driver of a second Greyhound bus that was following bus 1170, realized that there was something unusual in the way that Bruce Martin had pulled the bus over. So he stopped his bus and Mr. Skyrip stopped his bus on the shoulder in front of the Greyhound bus, 1170. And when he got out of the bus, he himself also observed Lee at the back of the bus and Skyrip entered the bus to try to call out to Lee as he sees him continually stabbing Tim's body still. And Lee just responds to him by stating calmly, get emergency. So at this point, Skyrup could tell that there was absolutely, unfortunately, nothing that could be done to help Tim at this point. And he just gets off the bus and waits for police and everybody else to arrive. I feel like a lot that happens a lot in this story. People are like, we should go in, we should help. And it, it's really unfortunate, but it, it happens so quick. Like you just yeah. don't expect. And there's just not a whole lot of hope for rescue after that. And unfortunately, you don't want to put anybody else at risk as well and right. have more fatalities or anything. Right. So meanwhile, the other passengers are huddled together roadside. Some of them are crying. Some of them are vomiting. Like, obviously, you know, they had witnessed this horrible trauma. They had witnessed the attack, the decapitation, and they also saw Lee carrying Tim's severed head around the bus. Like, they're all severely traumatized. So about a half an hour at the scene, police were at a standoff with Lee, and they had actually had to summon special negotiators and an armed tactical unit to help to try to get him off the bus. This whole time, Lee is alternating between pacing the bus and continually defiling Tim's corpse until the police would actually observe Lee eating parts of the body and would hear him say over and over, I have to stay on the bus forever. So law enforcement were watching all this happen. And at this point, they hadn't actually tried to stop him yet because there was, you know, like we said, unfortunately, no one left on the bus that he could hurt because poor Tim was beyond rescue. They figured he was in the middle of some sort of psychotic break and they were trying to wait him out to see like he would calm down. It would be easier and safer to get him once he had come down from the psychotic state instead of having to wrestle and fight him off the bus while in the middle of it, which makes perfect sense. It sucks that you have to just try to wait it out when something so terrible is happening. But again, like we don't want more people to be caught in the crossfire. And this is such an unstable situation. We don't even know what's coming. Yeah. Not to mention the fact that it all happened so quick, like Queenie said, that people are just in shock. So the standoff would continue for hours until around 1.30 a.m., July 31st. Lee attempted to escape the bus by breaking through a window, and he would throw out some belongings along with a knife and a pair of scissors. 
He then jumped out of the bus head first, landing on top of the knife. The RCMP members immediately tried to apprehend him and he was struggling, screaming. He refused to surrender his hands. He has Tim's blood all over his face. So the police would actually have to stun him with a taser on several occasions before he surrendered his hands and could be handcuffed and taken to a police vehicle. So as the passengers are watching all this go down, they get Lee. Eventually he comes out and falls out of the head first out of the bus. Police stunned Lee with the taser um, before he would surrender his hands and could be handcuffed and taken to a police vehicle. They then go on the bus to look at the, you know, look at the scene of the crime and they would retrieve parts of the victim's body from the bus and they would put, be put in plastic bags. But Tim's ear, his nose and his tongue would be found in Lee's pocket upon his arrest. But Tim's eyes and about one third of his heart would never be found and were likely eaten by Lee. Wow. And then the parts that he ate. Oh oh my God, please. They would find the tip of the blade of the hunting knife located in the skull of Tim in the forehead area, just above the inner aspect of his right eyebrow. And his body would show damage of in excess of 100 areas from abrasions to a large gaping wound in his chest. Later that morning at 10 a.m., Reps from Greyhound would take the passengers to a local store to replace all their clothes because that had been left on the bus and technically is evidence. And they were then driven to Winnipeg, arriving around 3.30 p.m., reuniting with their family and friends. Like they had been there almost the whole time. Wow. Okay. <laughs> like, so that's what happened. But like, let's get into who these people are and possibly why it, you know, why and how it went down. So Tim McLean, the victim, Timothy Richard McLean Jr. He was born October 3rd, 1985 in Victoria, British Columbia. His parents were Tim Sr. and Carol McLean McLean, and had a large extended family. He grew up in Winnipeg and in Eli, Manitoba. He was very active. He loved soccer, football, motorbikes, like basically anything that would get him dirty or into some trouble. He never got tired of pulling pranks. He was very charming and he loved listening to music and his pet iguana, Little Timmy. Aww, <laughs> like, I love I it. I can't. Across the board, he is described as a very adventurous person. He loved traveling and meeting new people. He just made friends anywhere he went. And he was said as having a legendary appetite, both for food and for life. And he could never stand still while there was a whole world to see. He was very outgoing made friends everywhere. And he got bored doing different jobs and he preferred to experience and live life instead of just going through the motions. So in 2008, when he was 22 years old, a longtime friend of his named Tiffany told him about the carnival job where she was working there too. She's like, pack your bag for like a week. We'll go do the carnival. We'll go a couple of different towns. You'll have a great time to meet some new people and then, you know, make some money and come home. Well, that week turned into basically all summer and the job was pretty perfect for Tim, like traveling to new towns, being new people everywhere he went. He made really good friends with the fellow carnies or whatever you call them, partying with them. They're all together all the time, just traveling together. So it was great. But at the time he did have a girlfriend. Her name was Colleen. He had known her since first grade, but they had gone separate ways after high school. She had gotten married and divorced. And then they rekindled their friendship and got together and she would become pregnant with her third child and Tim's first kid. And instead of going to the carnival, their next stop was going to be in Regina. He wanted to go home to Winnipeg to plan his move to British Columbia, I believe to be closer to Colleen. So friends of his offered to pay for him to buy a plane ticket instead of having to take the 24 hour bus ride. But Tim insisted on taking the bus. He's like, I don't want to take your money. Let's take the bus for a day. It's not a big deal. So who the hell is Vincent Lee? 
And why the hell does this go on? Okay. Honestly. That's a great question, little queenie. So Vincent, I believe it's pronounced Waiguang Lee, also known as Vince. And I've been calling him Lee this entire time. He was born in Dandong, China on April 30th, 1968. He graduated from the Wuhan Institute of Technology in 1992 with a bachelor's degree in computing. And from 1994 to 1998, he worked in Beijing as a computer software engineer before he immigrated to Canada with his wife, Anna, on June 11, 2001. He would officially become a Canadian citizen on November 7, 2006. And once settled in Winnipeg, Vince would work a few menial jobs at Grant Memorial Church for six months in order to support his wife, make some ends meet. His employer, and I know this is not a funny story, but this man's name, I cannot get over. His name is Pastor Tom Castor. His name is Pastor Castor. Pastor Castor? P-A-S-T-O-R, C-A-S-T-O-R. Like that's, come on. That just sounds fake. It just sounds fake. Yeah, that can't be. I'm sorry. That's like the office when Dwight's like, I went to the dentist. And he's like, what's your dentist name? (laughs) Crentist. Crentist. I can't. But Pastor Castor said that Vince Lee was a happy while employed there. He was seemed grateful to have a job, even though it wasn't in his chosen field in computer science. But he was committed to performing his jobs well. But he did seem to have a little bit of some grievances. There was a huge language barrier that sometimes made Lee feel very frustrated. English was his second language. He did not speak it very well. He had a hard time understanding. So he was really had a hard time communicating, understanding the fellow staff members as well as he would have liked. So this is understandably frustrating, but the pastor said that Lee did not seem to show any issues with anger or any other trouble before he quit the job in 2005 moving on to a forklift operating job while Anna worked as a server. So this lasted a little while until in 2006, when Lee suddenly moved to Edmonton, leaving Anna alone in Winnipeg until she possibly could join him later. So he just straight up. He just leaves. Okay. I've seen some things where like they were divorced at this point, but I've seen other things that at this point they were not divorced, but she was planning on joining him. He went on to get another job to get more money. We don't really know. As far as we can tell, there's really no real reason he had to move to Edmonton either way, but he would get a few regular jobs while he was there. He worked at Walmart, he worked at a fast food restaurant, and he worked um, in newspaper delivery. Now, Vincent Augert, his delivery boss, would also say that Lee was a very reliable employee and he did not show any signs of anger or trouble either. Seemingly, he is a good employee. Yes, he gets frustrated. He can't understand or communicate as much as he would like because of the language barrier, but he doesn't have an anger issue. He doesn't have issues with people. He comes to work, he does his job, and he leaves. But four weeks before the attack on the Greyhound bus, Lee was fired from his Walmart job after some sort of disagreement with the other employees. I couldn't find exactly what the disagreement was, um, but he then asked for some time off of his delivery job as well in order to go to a job interview in Winnipeg, possibly the bus trip. But he was known to take long bus trips on a whim and miss work with no explanation. So really, we don't know. This detail really gets me. Yeah. I don't understand how many near misses that like have happened before this even went down. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. After being fired, changing jobs, disagreement with coworkers, possibly the distance with his wife, possibly a separation we don't know, or at least they're in a long distance relationship. All of this was likely possibly due to some severe mental illness because Lee was diagnosed schizophrenic. And he had begun experiencing psychotic episodes back in 2003. And although those close to him encouraged Lee to seek medical treatment, he basically refused. 
So like I said, he may have been divorced or separated from Anna at the time, but he did maintain a relationship with her in some capacity. Anna told police that in the summer of 2004, Lee was acting strange. And over the course of a few days, he had basically stopped eating or sleeping. Like he was just all over the place. And Anna recalled that he was crying a lot. And he told me he saw God. And she thought like, he's just exhausted from not sleeping for days. He's just hallucinating from pure exhaustion. So she would buy him some sleeping pills. And that was that. But in 2005, a year later, there was an incident when Lee was picked up by police while walking down Highway 401 in Ontario. He had gotten rid of most of his possessions and he believed he was following the sun. He said that God told him to keep walking and follow the sun. So, and does Anna know? Anna knew about it. Yes. Right. But after that incident, he was briefly hospitalized in Ontario, but he was allowed to be discharged against medical advice. Yeah, he can't hold him. Force him there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. After that, he refused to accept that he had a mental illness. So Lee did not receive any treatment or any follow-up with providers. Man. Yikes. I have a little bit about schizophrenia in general. I know we covered him our very first season, like what, a couple episodes in with Bruce yeah. Blackman, but we weren't really getting into that kind of thing back then. Were you guys able to find any information on schizophrenia? Because I just have a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Here we are talking about schizophrenia again. We talked about it in in our first couple episodes, came up a little bit with Amy Bishop, a couple other people, but not, we don't talk about schizophrenia with violent crimes very often. And I feel like that's important to remember. So schizophrenia, according to the Mayo Clinic, is a serious mental disorder where people interpret reality abnormally resulting in a combination of hallucinations, delusions, and disordered thinking that impairs your daily functioning. This mental illness requires lifelong treatment. There are no preventative measures that you can take, and there is no cure. You have to be treated at the onset of diagnosis. You must, must, must be treated for life in order to keep it under control. And it's a legitimate disability. There are people with a high and intense degree of schizophrenia who are unable to perform daily functions. And it's got to do with the way that they interpret reality. So they have delusions, which are basically just false beliefs that are not based in reality. You know, that person made a gesture on the bus. It was directed at me. That person made a comment in a conversation that I'm not involved in. But, oh, I know that was directed at me. It becomes this. You think that someone's in love with you, maybe, and the person doesn't even know you. Or you think, you know, you hear about delusions of grandeur, like I'm the greatest Mm -hmm. person who's ever lived and that you, you have no basis to really. And also, if you think you're the greatest person that ever lived. You go with that. That's a positive <laughs> self I'm like, actually, I like that one. I decided that I like that one. So delusions, right? Then we have hallucinations. Now this is, we often, when you think of hallucinating, you think of seeing things, mm-hmm. but a lot of times it's hearing things, mm-hmm. auditory hallucinations. It's the quote unquote voices in your head, you know, and these things don't exist. And there's a fair amount of seeing things as well, but it's really the auditory, the voices, the girl in the Slenderman case, Mm. whose father is a schizophrenic, reports hearing voices. And that's very common with schizophrenia, disorganized thinking and speech, which I feel like you're seeing in Vince Lee big time. So you you can't communicate. Your thinking is disorganized. Therefore, when you speak, your words are disorganized and no one can understand you. You can be putting together meaningless words. 
Let alone you know, the language barrier already on top of it. Right, like, yeah. right, exactly. Ooh. I feel yeah, like some of you're... that is confused with the other. Yeah. Like, I think some people are just like, oh, well, he didn't speak the language well, so we couldn't understand him. And some of it is schizophrenia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like, he also can't communicate. And on the other side, he either not knowing he's in the middle of a schizophrenia like episode or not knowing right. he even had it yet mm-hmm. is also like unaware that could be what's happening as well and not just a language barrier too. Yes. Yeah. And then you throw the hyper paranoia in there too. And it's like just a bad combination. Yeah. yeah they really don't get into with Lee what type of schizophrenic he is, whether he's a paranoid schizophrenic, whether he's a high function, like, well, we know he's not a high function. Right. Right. Oh, yeah. they really don't get probably, into like what yeah, variety. Probably not, but... probably not high functioning though. You're no. Right. <laughs> I didn't need to add that note. You know, he's doing really good. No. No, no, no. No, I couldn't, but yeah, I couldn't find anything other than that. But that could be because he hadn't been, didn't want any treatment up to this point, at least. Like yeah. later he gets no evaluated, but still they don't really go into it. You're right. No. Odds are the paranoia is pretty high, especially with that thing and other people are talking about you having those delusions. There's also the extremely disorganized or abnormal motor behavior. So this is like unpredictable agitation, silliness, out of nowhere silliness. So the behavior isn't focused on a goal. In most human beings, when we act a certain way, it's because we are in in the process of doing something. We're not talking and we're not, you know, scratching our head and jumping on one leg when we're signing a piece of paperwork, right? Because we're focused on the task that's in front of us. So many schizophrenics can't complete tasks Mm -hmm. because it's like your behavior is focused on a goal with a schizophrenic. It's not. That's inappropriate posture, bizarre posture, resistance to instructions, which I suffer from. So I feel like I understand that. (laughs) A lot of these symptoms are also ADHD as well. And I suffer from a lot of those. And the useless Um, and excessive movement for no reason. And then finally, negative symptoms. mm -hmm. This is not taking a shower, completely neglecting your personal hygiene or total lack of emotion. Mm. No eye contact, mm-hmm. no facial expression, speaks in a monotone, you know, and, and social withdrawal as well. So there's no real cause for schizophrenia. No one can really say or pinpoint what causes it, but it's generally a combination of genetics, brain chemistry, and environment. That's as far as they've got problems with brain chemicals in specific, like dopamine or neurotransmitters. They may contribute to schizophrenia, but we don't really know. But that's because the brain structure and the central nervous system look different in people Mm. with schizophrenia. But we don't really know what causes that. It's Um, the same with sociopaths and psychopaths as well. Their brains look different from a normal brain, mm -hmm. but but they can't tell. Almost like they're missing, like they have lower levels of chemicals that go into their brain or whatever, lower levels or whatever. But it's like, Mm -hmm. that's as far as they can study it. They can't exactly. They don't know Uh, anything about it. They don't know why it's different. It just is different. The only thing that they can tell is that it's a brain disease. Schizophrenia is a brain disease. That's all we know. We don't know why. And we don't know what, like, we really don't know what causes it, but it comes on mostly in late adolescence to early adulthood. And it is much more prevalent in males than it is females, especially males with a history, a family history. Um, I did read somewhere when they have like auditory hallucinations, the majority is a male voice, regardless Mm. of whether the person who has schizophrenia is a male or a female. 
if they're hearing voices, usually it's a male voice, which like, I don't love that. I don't love that at all. The only thing that I wanted to add was, so like, obviously, like we said, the police had figured out that Lee was having like a psychotic break. And we know now like schizophrenia, but technically like psychosis and schizophrenia are not the same thing, but people are constantly just using them interchangeably. Psychosis is actually a symptom defined by losing touch with the reality, which can happen in schizophrenia, but schizophrenia is the disorder that can cause psychosis. Not all individuals experiencing psychosis have schizophrenia. Right. So it's right. like a whole thing. Like they think it's the same thing and yeah, it can happen, but it doesn't need to be that. Like that was just wild to me. Yeah. Like you could have one without the other right. sometimes Right. in specific like situations. Yeah. Yikes. Scary. It really is. Scary stuff. So like what led up to this horrific event? This all leads up to two days before the incident, July 28th of 2008. And at this point, Lee was already showing signs of someone on the brink of a mental episode for sure. But he wasn't around anyone who knew him on a daily basis, really. He had taken time off of work. He got fired from Walmart. He wasn't near his wife. But before the bus journey, Anna at some point found a note from him to her that says, I'm gone. Don't look for me. I wish you were happy. Let's just take a pin in that because to me... I want to bring that. I just want to discuss that later. Cause like that, that just seems like he had some sort of precognition, like if not necessarily that it was premeditated, you know, 100%. like, right. I, I totally agree. Me too. Same. So at 12.02 PM, <clears throat> July 28th, Lee would board a Greyhound bus for Winnipeg. And the following day around 6 PM, Lee got off the bus at Erickson, Manitoba with three pieces of luggage. That bus driver would try to advise him. This is not the stop you want. And there was insufficient time to reissue his ticket and he would end up having to spend 24 hours in Ericsson as there was only one bus per day that stops there. He's like, this isn't your stop. Like you're going to have to wait a whole day for another bus to come. And he just got off the bus anyway. He would end up staying the night on a bench next to a grocery store where the bus stop was. And when a witness would see him at 3 a.m. sitting on that bench, bolt upright with his eyes wide open, he did not sleep a wink which we already knew he had had issues with sleeping prior. He's just sitting there calm, like a robot with his eyes wide open all night long on a bench outside. Like, no, thank you. Imagine seeing that at 3am. No, no, no. Bye. Nope. 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 Thank you. Bye. He had been sitting at this bench, completely emotionless and quiet with a sign in front of him that said laptop for sale, $600 or best offer. There would still be hours left until the next bus arrived. And Lee, at this point, had disposed of most of his personal belongings by either selling them or burning them. So the next morning, he's still there. He's still awake on the bench. He ended up selling his laptop to a 15-year-old boy for $60. So that tells me, like, he first of all, he's trying to sell all of his belongings. Not great. Then he's trying to sell his laptop $600 or best offer. But he ends up selling it for 60 bucks to a 15-year-old boy. And you said he was, he burnt things too? He burned things? Yes. So when he left the bus, he had three pieces of luggage with him. And at this point, when he sells his laptop, it's like one of his only possessions he has left. And he either sold all the the other belongings or burned some as well. So he's just getting rid of stuff. He's trying to get some money, but like 60 bucks to just give a laptop to a kid. Like he obviously is either completely desperate for cash or unaware of what's going on. So once the murder would become public, that boy alerted authorities that he was the one who bought the laptop and the computer would be confiscated by RCMP as evidence. And because of his honesty, an anonymous businessman would give the boy a brand new laptop. Aw. Which is nice. That's cute. Yeah. 
But a few hours after selling the laptop, Lee boards the same Greyhound bus as Tim and the attack takes place and then his subsequent arrest, like we already talked about. But after the arrest, Lee is still psychotic. Like he's experiencing hallucinations, hearing voices. He's still in the midst of it. And he would say later, he said, the voice told me that I was the third story of the Bible, that I was the second coming of Jesus. I was to save people from a space alien attack. Oh my God. Oh my God. Okay. So, you know, so you know, you know, you know, Herbert Mullen. I know, I know that name, but why? Quinnies, Quinnies, Quinnies. You got to look up Herbert Mullen. He is a Herbert. serial killer. He ended yes. up in the same prison as Ed Kemper. They hated each other. I believe they both still hate each other and are both still alive, if you can believe that. <laughs> he was a serial killer in the Santa Cruz area, same sort of stomping grounds as Ed Kemper. And he believed, he was a schizophrenic too, by the way, that he was saving California from the big earthquake by, by murdering people. people. He had a voice in his head telling him that he was saving the world by preventing the earthquake by committing these murders. These people really really believe this. They do. They really believe it. They really believe it. For sure. So again, Lee is arrested and he's going to go to trial for murder, right? So March 3rd, 2009, Lee's trial begins, but he would be found mentally incompetent to stand trial. But his plea would be not guilty by reason of mental disorder or not criminally responsible to second-degree murder. So this means that while he accepts that the event occurred and like he physically did it, he claims he was not mentally aware enough to determine right from wrong or was not knowledgeable about the fact that a crime would be committed due to his mental disorder. So Dr. Stanley Yarin, the psychiatrist for The Crown who performed Lee's psychiatric evaluation, he said that Lee attacked Tim because he was hearing voices from God in his head that caused him to single out Tim, who was a complete stranger. He did not know Tim at all before this bus ride. He did not single out Tim knowing him previously. When he singled Tim out in general, he said that God was telling him that Tim was a demon or a space alien. Some people think that he was an alien too. I don't know. Either way, he's not thinking he's a human being. Mm. And that if he doesn't kill him, Lee will be killed and everyone else around him. So Dr. Yaron described Lee as otherwise a decent person who was suffering from untreated schizophrenia and was out of his mind when he believed he was acting on God's command to eliminate the force of evil by attacking Tim. So this Dr. Yaron, he talks, there's a lot. He said during his testimony, Lee was being tormented by auditory hallucinations, like we discussed a little bit already. He believed that Mr. McLean was a force of evil and was about to execute him, and he had to act fast, urgently, to save his own life. This wasn't an innocent bystander or a stranger he chose to kill, but rather an evil force he was commanded to kill. And he didn't understand, in my opinion, that he was just killing an innocent bystander. He understood that this was the only action he could take. Yaron told the Court of Queen's bench Justin John Scurfield, who's the judge providing over the trial, Once Tim was obviously dead from the dozens of stab wounds to the back and his chest and his neck and his head and all that, Lee continued to hear voices demanding he attack the body, which is why he continued to go back and forth attacking it more, even though he was definitely already dead. He said he was terrified, frightened. Mr. Lee's fear because of what he was being told through these hallucinated voices is that what he perceived to be the evil being would come back to life through some supernatural powers and finish him off. So he was in a frenzy to prevent this from happening. So not only does he think he's an alien or a demon 
but that even though he knows in some way that he already killed him, he needs to continually attack him so he doesn't come back to life. I mean, he knows he's dead. Okay. He's obviously very sick. Yes. I don't think anyone is, you know, arguing that, but it's just so horrific. It's so, it's it's just so hard to put even into perspective, you know, like I fully believe this doctor is probably completely competent and correct in what they're saying. It's just at the end of the day, you know, it's such an innocent victim. Yeah. And to the extent a lot to swallow. I know. Oh, no, no, no. Take it out. Take it out. No. Take it out now. The extent that he went to go forward with the decapitation, to go forward with the cannibalism. It's like you do, like when he said, you understand why they have made that decision and that, yeah, he's obviously really sick, but it still just doesn't really make it any less awful. Just... I'll bring it up again later. We'll talk about it. He brought the knife with him, though. The knife was ready. It was there. Uh, Okay, we'll talk about it. We'll talk. Yeah, it's like he was gonna. All right, like there was already. It's like almost like he already had some intentions to get violent. Yeah, yeah. And a note to Anna. So the same psychiatrist told the court that while Lee did admit to the killing. He did have a very strong chance of recovering from the mental illness and extreme psychosis he was experiencing as long as he got help and kept up with treatment. And Yarin believed that Lee could make a very significant recovery in the next few years under rigorous treatment and medication. But at the time, he was still continuing to suffer from delusions, including a belief that he would one day be executed. And he's like, he's not uh, 100% out of his psychotic phase yet, but over time, as he recovers, he will have to come to terms with the awful things that have occurred. So like at this point, A year later, he's still not out of that psychotic phase. He was on very strong antipsychotic medication. He's being treated this whole time. He was brought to a health center instead of a prison. He's getting treatment. And yet, even after all of that, he's still not completely out of the psychotic phase. Yeah, it's not good. So keep that in mind later too. Like that's not great. So in his opinion, Dr. Yarns, along with the psychiatrist for the defense, Dr. Jonathan Rutenberg, Lee could be rehabilitated and eventually return to society as a functioning member of the community, though he knows that this was something that people would definitely most likely not feel comfortable with. Well, yeah, of course. Are you of kidding course. me? But yeah, dude. I mean, of course, like no one, no one. No one. No, no one. Like, are you joking me? It's outrageous. That's the thing. We'll get more into this with Final Thoughts, so I don't want to say, speak on it too much. But mm-hmm. absolutely, it, it's so frustrating because this is where that, where is the, where do you draw the line I, yeah. for mental? Yes, we talk about it on our podcast all the time. It's actually a huge, huge factor in what we really try to, we try to represent mental health in all yes. of its facets. There's and a I stigma like around try, it, of course. Right. You know, and like, I try to, yeah. But then in the same vein, it's like there are some people out there that are just really so sick that there isn't a a way for them to get better and they need to be treated accordingly. Yeah. Like that's just the bottom line. Yes. In general, killing people is a mental health issue. In general, if you feel it's okay to kill a person for whatever reason, like mentally something is not right. But like- There's something different between a level of psychosis like Ted Bundy just being a fucking psycho killing people for fun, which is obviously still a mental health issue in some capacity versus this issue. Like it's completely different. It is. 
Both psychiatrists are like, Lee's cooperative. He's made significant strides being hospitalized and medicated. And he's like, I completely understand the need for a sense of justice, of retribution. And it would make some sense. It would be in some sense easier if Mr. Lee was an antisocial psychopath with a history of malicious behavior, but he isn't that. He's basically a decent person. He is as much a victim of this horrendous illness as Mr. McLean was a victim. He says, don't hate the person, hate the illness. Our society as a whole doesn't have a lot of tolerance for people with severe mental illness. And yes, that is all technically true. It is. But like, no, he is not the same victim as Tim McLean was. No, and that's not like, fair to put them in the same category either. Not. It really is. It's completely not. insensitive. Just like you Quinnies are saying, we are absolutely 100% pro taking care of your mental health. No shame. Just no shame. Right. Absolutely none. Everybody has problems. There's nothing you can do about the fact that you have this problem inherently. There's nothing you could have done. Like this man, there was nothing he could have done to prevent being schizophrenic. Correct. But it is his fucking responsibility to his community to get treatment and to say it's his responsibility to himself and to his family and to his community to not refuse to treat it that's where the crime comes in for me is like you didn't you you refused it man like you're not falling through with your end of the bargain bro no one can do that for you and granted again like we know with schizophrenia in specific in this case I'm sure there are cases when they either that plays a part in them refusing the fact that they think that they have it or refusing to take medication for it. Like they think right. it's a conspiracy against them or they take it for a little while, think they're better and then get off of it because they think Stop. they're better yeah. on their own. But in general, he just seems to have refused it from the get go and just did not want any treatment. And that unfortunately is on him. Yeah, I'm not, I shouldn't even say this. Let's take Jessica Simpson, for example. Okay, Quinnies, remember Jessica Simpson? <laughs> Jessica Simpson came out as a, as a, in the height of Britney Spears. She had a beautiful singing voice because she was taking singing lessons every day since she was a little kid. Mm-hmm. She got very famous. And what happened? She stopped training her voice, Quinnies, and it went away. So just think about <laughs> a terrible example it's a horrible think about jessica yes. simpson okay that's all i think about yes <laughs> i had the so tank top chicken? that said is it and then a picture of a chicken or is it and then a fish like i oh, have shirt. oh my god not okay no. not okay oh my god really all just comes back to the brutality of it because time and time again, we can find ourselves saying, okay, the mental disability was a huge factor behind this killing or this murder or this crime. We can very much turn to that. This, however, is like, dude, you literally decapitated somebody on a bus in front of 30 something people. Sorry, Doc, I kind of disagree with you. Like the brutality of it. It's so heinous. Absolutely. In general, both psychiatrists conclude that Lee should be found not criminally responsible for his actions based on his mental state at the time. And such a ruling would then send him to a mental hospital instead of a prison for an indefinite period. So Judge John Scurfield, who presided over the trial, he accepted the schizophrenia diagnosis. And because of this, along with the fact that Lee had no criminal record or violent history prior to the attack, he ruled that Lee was not criminally responsible for the killing of Tim McLean. So Lee was then remanded to the Selkirk Mental Health Center for treatment for his mental illness. But the official verdict 
that morning, like angered Tim McLean's family members to absolutely no end, which is completely understandable. Yeah. Tim's mother, Carol Dedelli, said he should be held responsible for it. He still did it. Whether he was in the right frame of mind or not, he still did the act. There was nobody else on that bus holding a knife, slicing up my child. It's so true. Tim's father, Tim Sr., said that the idea that Lee could receive medication, counseling, and then be released back into back onto the street after committing such a heinous act is really frightening. So, like, what happened to everybody else? There were 34 passengers that witnessed this horrific crime, along with two bystanders. One of the passengers, Marlene Gregory, was taking the bus for a three-hour trip home from Winnipeg from her work. And she didn't make that trip often, but she would never make that trip ever again. Yep. Bye. Never again. Never again. She says she prays in her native Ojibwe prayers morning and night for everyone who was on that bus with her to try to get over it, but it will not leave her. She says everywhere I go, I am aware of my surroundings and I used to be the type to walk around and feel safe. I trust people and that's gone. I'm trying to get it back and it's been pretty rough. She even has an issue making dinner every night because she can't stand to like use her kitchen knives because it just takes her right back to the bus. Wow. So traumatic. Another witness, 20-year-old Stephen Allison, he was the one riding his bus with his wife or girlfriend, Isabella, who was sitting across from Tim and Lee. Again, like he did not find comfort after the trial ended with the final verdict. He told the media that he understood why the court would choose treatment for Lee, but it still scares him that Lee would be out one day. And he says he's been deeply affected by the incident and it's completely changed his life. He's like, I'm always suspicious everywhere I go that someone will do something. I'm looking over my back, even around my friends. Like it's right in front of you. And some images can just never get out of your head. After the event, he almost flunked out of college due to the stress and the trauma. And as if that wasn't bad enough, the Greyhound representatives, after the event, like took them to get new clothes and whatever. They assured him that compensation and trauma counseling for him and his wife and the rest of the passengers, they would, they would compensate for that. But shortly after the murder, the email addresses and phone numbers Greyhound provided completely stopped working. And he never heard from them again. Shame on you, Greyhound. Shame on you. Poor shame. Very, very. uh, I don't even like that they took him to get new clothes, to be honest with you. I did not like that detail from the beginning. I'm like, what are you doing? Like, Like, I I don't uh, know. I don't know about that. I feel like it's, uh, I feel like you're trying to patch it up so that people don't go call their lawyer. Exactly. I don't like that. So many of the other witnesses also have been diagnosed with PTSD. One woman had her child taken away from her at birth, which was years later, mind you, because doctors feared that her PTSD would prevent her from being able to care for her child in the correct way. And they would end up granting custody to the child's grandmother. Bruce Martin, the bus driver, he was the person that called 911. And he says he relives that moment between five and 50 times every single day. And he becomes numb all over. He can no longer work, and so he relies on his wife for their household income. Chris Algier, the truck driver who stopped to help, has also been diagnosed with PTSD, and in an interview, he confessed to turning to alcohol to dull his pain. A few weeks after the murder, Chris allegedly got drunk in a rural bar in Manitoba and broke into a fence compound while he was drunk, and he would get charged with breaking and entering, and he then quit long-haul trucking and moved closer to home in southeastern Manitoba. If all of that wasn't bad enough, In July of 2014, Corporal Ken Barker of the RCMP, he was one of the first officers on the scene, committed suicide after suffering from PTSD from the event. So terrible. It is such a ripple. It's such a classic illustration of the ripple 
yeah. of pain and suffering that goes on when these violent events happen. It's so and bad. It's really just never ending for them. Like yeah. they cannot get over it, which I really get. So what about the legal ramifications of all of this? Because Jesus Christ. In February 2011, two passengers sued Greyhound, Vince Lee, the RCMP, and the Canadian government for $3 million as compensation for them witnessing Lee stabbing to death, mutilating his body, and performing acts of cannibalism. But the lawsuit would be dropped in 2015 after Greyhound said it could not be sued under Manitoba's system of no-fault vehicle insurance. So the McLean family would also file a lawsuit of $150,000 against Lee, Greyhound, and the Attorney General of Canada. But as of 2018, the lawsuit had stalled, and I could not find any resolution since then. I'm assuming it's still stalled. Like, no idea. The trial um, of Lee would also force Greyhound to redo their marketing techniques. At the time of the event, they had just released a campaign based on the friendliness of the bus system, and their slogan was literally. There's a reason you've never heard of bus rage. Jeez. Pretty poor timing. Pretty poor timing. So they got rid of that marketing idea because holy hell. And the event also led to numerous calls and petitions demanding increased security on inner city buses. A little side tidbit. Not long after the event, PETA, the animal activism group, they had an ad that they were going to use that likened the consumption of animals to the consumption of Tim McLean's flesh. They were literally going to exploit his horrific murder to say like, don't eat animals. Like I get it, plant-based diet all the way, but like, are you absolutely fucking kidding me? Yeah, it's, it's really gross. They did ultimately decide to not run that ad. So for Vince Lee, for the first three years, he would live in isolation at the Selkirk Mental Health Center. And because he was a cooperative patient at the time, he eventually gained more and more freedom. He would get the privilege of going outside, having visitors. By 2010, he was granted supervised outdoor walks within the facility. And then a couple of years later, temporary passes that would allow him to leave the facility and visit the town. And this would grow to unsupervised visits, and he would end up moving into a group home in 2015. And the following year, Lee had his name legally changed to Will Baker while seeking to leave his group home to live independently. Now, on February 10th, 2017, the Manitoba Criminal Code Review Board ordered that Lee be granted an absolute discharge with no legal obligations or restrictions to his independent living. He is now a free man with his own apartment in Winnipeg. I just need to know, like, on the legal side of things, get it that Canada's laws are whatever versus United States laws, but you're telling me he could be granted an absolute discharge? Yep. So horrible. I'm all for not locking people up for life. I am all for not packing prisons full of people and just shutting them away from society. It's it's not rehabilitation. We just give up on people in the United States a lot of the times. Like I get the idea behind it, but he doesn't have to report to anybody. He doesn't have to talk to anyone. He doesn't have to say, hey, I'll be at this place at this time or get reports from his employer. Or that's 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 really great. Someone else is going to end up dead. Especially because he changed his name. Like wow. background checks mean nothing. Yeah. So like his landlords aren't yep. going to know. His employers aren't going to know. Wow. Neighbors aren't going to know. Like he's not on any registered list. His medical There's history. Thing. And Lee actually stated at some point that he was open to voluntarily having his medications monitored, but they didn't make him do that. Like, fine. Like if you're going to find him not criminally responsible due to mental health, like, Fine. That's one thing 
I don't necessarily agree or disagree, but that's one thing. But after you let him completely live on his own in the community, new name, nothing, and you're not even going to make sure that he follows up with treatment with a doctor, anything. Um, But the McLean family, Tim's mother, Carol, has voiced her opinion very strongly over social media and otherwise throughout the years, criticizing Canada's not criminally responsible laws. And she believes that Lee should remain in custody for life. Um, And that is the story of Tim McLean. Thoughts, Quinnies? I have a new t-shirt for us for Straight Up Evil from this episode. And that Mm -hmm. is all of the rules that we have come up with through all of our episodes. And one of them being um, like, don't fall asleep on planes, trains, (laughs) buses, or automobiles. Yeah. I, I fell asleep on a plane and got felt up. Elizabeth Mm -hmm. Smart fell asleep on a plane and got felt up. This guy fell asleep on a freaking bus and got murdered. I fell asleep on the bus every morning, driving the two hours to my job when I didn't have Yeah, I bet you won't anymore, Quinny. I bet you fucking won't ever again. Won't do it. Quinny, have either of you ever taken the Greyhound? Yes. Yes, I have. Have you found it to be a particularly pleasant and exciting experience for you? Have you found That's it to be five star accommodations? No, I would say that no. you're, no. Uh, you know, whatever. No, it's pretty bare bones, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's not very nice, right? Like it's not a very nice accommodation. Yeah. Even Tim had the opportunity to maybe fly. They said, no, we're not going to do that. No frills. I'll yeah. take the Greyhound. I understand it. We've all yeah. taken the Greyhound before. Not particularly nice. I would like to ask Greyhound Corporation what the fuck they're spending their money on other than compensating all of the people who watch this happen on their bus. That's what I would like to know because their cost can't be particularly high. I guess it's dictated (laughs) by the cost of fuel or whatever, but it's not a fat, like this is not a, you are an established corporation. These are people who have, who have no, there's no uh, justice in this story. And I don't, really particularly give a damn about your liability insurance yeah there is a right thing to do and a wrong thing to do in this situation and the right thing to do would be to get them some help that's that the, they deserve it buying them some underwear is not enough dude. no 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 exactly. like ever no. ever like she should no. never have to worry about money ever no yeah i agree and for that fact the family was only asking for 150 grand, not even the 3 million that the passengers read. You know what I mean? That yeah. is pittance compared. It's you nothing. know what I mean? And Absolutely. There's the family of the victim, for God's sake. It's really gross. It's really gross, Greyhound. It's really disgusting. Uh, take care of your mental health. You know, it sucks, but you have to be treated for life for this. And so that's what you got to do. And whether Zorro was the clincher that just threw him off the edge or whatever, like he had the knife, the hunting knife with him hidden in his jacket. He was getting rid of all of his other possessions. He could have gotten the knife, you know, some money for the knife. He didn't sell that one. I do believe he was very sick. I do believe he's completely schizophrenic. Like I, I believe the total diagnosis. I just, there is, there's an element of criminal responsibility. You know, we see it now with for that. Yeah. Like we see it now with COVID. If you, it like in light of COVID, just think about it that way. Like if you have COVID and you know, you have COVID and you willfully expose other people to COVID and cough all over them and they get sick and they lose their life. 
aren't you criminally responsible? Thanks, Mackenzie. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Mackenzie. <laughs> Thanks very much, Mackenzie. And I also feel bad for all the Will Bakers of the world. I know. Who now every, because every time I meet a Will Baker now, I'm going to be like, let me pull this <laughs> off, make sure it's not a mask and you're not hiding under there. I know. I know. Really, really sad. Super yeah, sad. Nice. Rest in peace. I know. Good luck sleeping Damn. ever again. All right. Love All right, Queenies. Hey, Queenies. Love you. Love you, Queenies. Love you, Queenies. Bye. Bye. Listen to Straight Up Evil.